Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 316, and I had a conversation with Bill Persky. He's a five-time Emmy award-winning writer, director, and producer. He wrote for Dick Van Dyke Show. He created That Girl. He wrote for Sid Caesar, Bill Cosby, Kate and Allie. He directed Kate and Allie. He specialized in television pilots. From 75 to 82, he directed 22 pilots, including Serial, Who's the Boss, Kate and Allie, and Welcome Back, Cotter. Quite a legacy he has. He also wrote a book, which we didn't really talk about on this episode, and the book is called My Life is a Situation Comedy. We covered so much ground that, honest to goodness, I forgot about the book, which, bad me, but we had a really fascinating conversation regardless. Bill is 90 years old, and he's still going strong and working on a brand new project. Anytime I talk to somebody that has been on the planet for as long as Bill has, I want to ask about, you know, how they saw things then and how they see things now. We talked about uh, the Depression a little bit. We talked about World War II a little bit. Okay, usual stuff. Social media, Hey Human Podcast, can be found on Instagram and Facebook. My personal social media, Susan Ruthism, can be found on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I try to put different content on all those different channels. I have one video on TikTok, not even worth a mention, but there you go. <laughs> I need to be I need to be a TikTok person, but it intimidates me. You can email me, Susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com and you'll find a whole bunch of stuff there, including the links page. That's where I collect up articles and anything we may have talked about social media stuff for my guests, how to contact them. That's all there on the links page so that you don't have to go looking everywhere. You can just go to one place. That's how I show my love for you. Acts of service. Storefront is on there. If you would like to help support Hey Human, keep her ad free, keep her going. You can do that by getting merch, which you can find there in the store. Hats, t-shirts, masks, tote bags, pencil cases. I partnered with Art of Wear to do the storefront. They do an incredible job, and I don't have to think. I just have to design. So did that, put all the designs in there, and the rest is pretty easy peasy. Just go in, you select what you want, and it comes to you. How great is that? Old episodes of Hey Human can be found on heyhumanpodcast.com. The algorithms of iTunes and various other podcast apps apparently only house about 300 episodes at a time. So if you want to go check out old episodes, do so there on heyhumanpodcast.com. I've got them all listed there and you can listen easily. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Another great way to help support the show, getting her out there into the universe. There is a contribute button. If you like what you hear and you think, wow, I can't believe all this content is free and there's no ads annoying me throughout it. Well, great way to help it grow and, and keep on the air is a little contribution here and there. Does that, wow, that rhymes. If you want to find out more about what I do aside from the podcast, go to susanruth.com. You'll find interviews I've done. You'll find my music and artwork. All sorts of stuff is on there for you to dig around in. Definitely check that out. Speaking of music, all my albums are on iTunes and Amazon Music and Spotify and all those places under Susan Ruth. Most recent record is called All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Definitely check that out. I'm really proud of that album still. It came out in 2014, which is a minute ago, but very proud of that record and everybody that contributed to it. I have an official Susan Ruth YouTube where there are videos from yesteryear and not too long ago. So go to youtube.com slash official Susan Ruth to find that. God, there's so much stuff to go look at on the internets, you know? It's pretty wild. Um, Oh, speaking of things on the internet. My friend Mara and I started a new show. You can find it on YouTube. It's called Are We There Yet? It's a sex relationship show. She brings all the wisdom. I bring the comic relief, I suppose, and some of the storytelling. You can find it easily 
by going to Instagram and, and checking out Are We There Yet IG because there's a link in the bio on Instagram. Uh, as soon as we hit 100 subscribers, it'll be much easier to find it just directly on YouTube. But the rules are you have to have 100 subscribers on YouTube before you get to name the show so and make it easy for people to find. So please subscribe and check it out. They're about a half an hour long. We just started it and it's kind of fun to do a video one. There, there'll be a podcast component coming soon. We're building the website right now. However, you'll be able to get every episode that we put out on video on that YouTube machine. So please go there. I think that's about it for all the business. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Be well, stay kind, stay safe out there. It's kind of a nutty time. I guess it's always a nutty time, but it seems especially nutty. Uh, Just be the love, be the love, be the love, be the love. And thank you for continuing to support Hey Human with your ears and your hearts and your minds. And... uh, I mean, my appreciation is boundless, honestly. I couldn't do it without you, so thank you. All right, let's get into this, and here we go. Bill Persky, welcome to Hey Human. Hey, nice to be here. Yeah, our mutual friend, uh, Jeff. Jeffrey, yes. Yeah. Who has an unfortunate last name. But I love him. He's a great guy. He is. I just, I met him recently because a friend of mine, Josh Sapan, I don't know if you know Josh. I don't know Josh. He recommended that Jeffrey have me come talk to his class. And it was a class in, uh, at uh, Parsons School of Design. Mm -hmm. And I'm a comedy writer. I didn't know where I fit in, but we had a wonderful time and Jeffrey was very pleased and so we become friends and now he's recommending me to everybody so well let's jump right in i want to sure. start with your childhood your upbringing where you're from originally and was it a creative family a funny family no <laughs> <laughs> uh, i was born uh in 1931 which was the beginning of the depression and my father thought it was mental as well as financial. He was a very depressed man. And uh, it was not a funny family. My mother's family were fun, you know, when we went to see them. And we moved around a lot. There were no jobs in the, in, in the Depression. So my father, who was a brilliant salesman, I will certainly give him that, he went around taking whatever jobs he could get. He would be a carnival pitch man, bringing people into the freak show. He, he sold uh, kazoos, you know, those little thing at the yeah. World's Fair with Abbott and Costello, believe it or not. They were his partners in, in that. They were funny. And uh, then he went into uh, the auction business, but it's a business that people don't know about. I mean, they don't, when you hear auction business, you think of farm auctions or things like Sotheby's or, you know, high end things. But there's a whole industry of auction galleries in places where people with money spend time. I got an unknown caller. Could be important. Could be my father in heaven hearing about me saying bad things. But at any rate, he was a great salesman. And we moved around a lot. Uh, I went to 13 different schools before I went to high school. And my sister, who was older than me, she went to 22 different schools. And of course, during the Depression, it was interesting that you would live someplace as a kid and you'd go to sleep and you'd wake up someplace else because they would move out when the rent was due and you'd just go to a whole other place. So it created a lot of emotional security, as you can imagine. And eventually we ended up, I lived one year in Hot Springs, Arkansas, because there were auction galleries there. And I actually uh, went to the same grammar school as Bill Clinton, not at the same time, but uh, he went to Ramble Street School, same as I did. 
and uh, he was and that school was in a mountain on a mountain and in fact at recess one day a kid got bitten by a rattlesnake so that's how far <laughs> remote it was uh, and we lived there for a year that was when World War two started not because we lived there but <laughs> it happened at the same time and uh, so we lived there and then we moved from there to Atlantic City, New Jersey, because there, there were a lot of auction galleries there on the boardwalk. It was a major source of, of uh, entertainment for people. And my father ended up owning his own auction gallery. And he did until he retired, and then they moved to Florida. And uh, they both passed away at 95. And I don't know how I got into the entertainment business. I went to Syracuse University and uh, I started entertaining at the fraternity that I was joined. I just, uh, with a friend of mine, we started writing little skits and shows and so we were the entertainment thing. And then we decided on graduating that we would go to New York and try and get into show business. But we started off in the advertising at an advertising agency where I showed up the first day in a seersucker suit and a button down shirt and a tie and a briefcase. And the only thing I ever carried in that briefcase was bagels and donuts for people's luncheon breakfast that that was what starting i was earning 30 dollars a week to be a uh, trainee which was a nice word for gopher and what year was that that was in 1954 when i got married in 1955 between us we were earning 75 dollars a week and we had a car and an apartment and took vacations it wasn't all that terrible times have changed uh, what do you remember yeah. from the the looking back growing up in the depression? I know, for example, my dad has interesting quirks that are a result of growing up incredibly poor during the depression. You moved around a lot with your family, which creates its own kind of issues. It kind of felt moving around. You're always an outsider, you know, and you were you were trying to be accepted and then you'd be moving someplace else so that was hard but the financial stuff I mean I remember one of my memories very vividly uh, it was I guess in 1935 so I must have been four years old and we were living in a kind of a cold water flat and at Christmas time the firemen came around <coughs> and they gave kids presents and they gave me they let me pick a present and it was a, a little wagon a milk truck a milk cart with a horse and a, a guy riding it and the roof was red and the side was yellow and the guy was sitting there and the horse was black and white and I just loved it and I turned around and my mother was crying and I couldn't figure out how something that made me so happy would make my mother cry and of course she was crying because it was welfare and I didn't know the difference it was a toy and there were a lot of uh, I guess there were a lot of uh, circumstances that kids couldn't they weren't direct in other words it wasn't a one-to-one -one thing like that where my mother was crying because it was welfare and I was happy because it was a toy but when you're poor and your parents are trying to provide for you, they're they're unhappy, and they're and you're generally not that unhappy because you don't really even know what's available, and you know that they're trying to get it for you. So there's a, there's a kind of a conflict of reality, I guess. And uh, I mean, a lot of my friends or people I've worked with, like Carl Reiner, who are older, they went to programs that were 
set up by the WPA, which is the Work Program Administration, which was one of the things that President Roosevelt did that really saved a lot of people. I mean, they had theater programs and they had artists and, I mean, just amazing things. And most of the high schools, the old high schools in America, were built by WPA. They all looked alike because the WPA built them and those guys earned minimum salaries, but they had a job and it allowed them to put food on the table. Mm-hmm. Did you have an awareness as World War II was ramping up that, that that was going on, especially, I assume you're Jewish? Yes, World War II, I was, I was nine. And uh, I remember my mother had an uncle who lived in Memphis, Tennessee. And Hot Springs, Arkansas was about a three-hour drive or something from there. And my uncle was a, a, a very renowned doctor, and he was the head of the Memphis Hospital. And we got to his house, and we crossed the bridge over the Mississippi River, and uh, the bombings and we didn't understand what it was. No one knew where Pearl Harbor was or whatever. And my uncle came home and packed. He was called up. He, my uncle was Admiral Nimitz's doctor during World War II. But he immediately got called up. And when we went back to Hot Springs that night, the bridge was guarded by soldiers. I mean, it was like in a four-hour period, we were at war, you know. And... Uh, I think my first creative achievement was they had a defense stamp drive to sell war bonds and stuff, and they had a contest to come up with a slogan. And I came up with a slogan, buy defense stamps and lick the other side. And that I was love it. it. That's so great. Yeah. I know. I won that. I don't know how, but I did. <laughs> Genius. Oh, wow. When we moved back to Atlantic City, there was all the hotels had been turned into hospitals for the uh, soldiers who were wounded. So it was uh, it was really an interesting time. And on VJ Day and VE Day, I remember thousands of rolls of toilet paper being thrown out of the windows as streamers. You know, everybody was throwing toilet paper and the whole hotels were all draped in toilet paper. Wow. And then I remember dropping the day they dropped the atomic bomb, which also nobody had any idea of. And uh, all we knew was good. It's going to mean the end of the war. And I just recently read uh, Hiroshima, the book, and it's written about what happened in Japan. Uh, and you realize, God, what a horrific thing it was that we did, you know? Mm-hmm. But, and and uh, in a way, we had it had to be done. Otherwise, they, I think they calculated the number of casualties that there would be if we invaded Japan. And they just figured that we couldn't risk that. So, yeah. So far, it's all funny. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, nothing like a little. Your pod followers are just hysterical. They're double over. (laughs) You know what, though? I'm. I think it's important to talk about these historical moments. Uh, You know, the the idea that should we forget it, we're doomed to repeat it. I I have a feeling that whether or not we forget it, we're still doomed to repeat it. Yeah, well, I'm I'm doing a project. I, I live out in Shelter Island, in in which is out on Long Island, and it's across the the bay from Sag Harbor, and I'm there's a wonderful uh, new performance space. These two artists, uh, Eric Fischel and his wife April Gornick, who are really top flight artists. They wanted to create an, uh, an art school and a, a center for artists. So they bought this old church and they redid it. And it's the most beautiful performance space. So I spoke there a couple of months ago and uh, 
this little kid was waving to me. He had a mask on, and I thought I must have known him because I know a lot of young kids. I'm big with kids. And uh, when it was over, he came over to me. I said, do I know you? He said, no. I said, well, why were you waving at me? He said, to make you feel good. And he's become one of my best friends now, Finney. And we're doing a project, a film, for the church called When I Was Your Age. And it's going to be going back to what the world I lived in when I was 12, as opposed, and then we're going to go have some other people when they were 12 and go through the history of the past 80 years with people's 12 year, year memories of when they were 12. And uh, a lot of it, he is, a lot of it is environmental. I mean, Vinny is a, Finney is a very big environmentalist. So it's about, and, and oh, I know, the reason I want to say this is, I was talking to Eric, the, who's doing it, and, he, and I said, you know, when I was 12, I didn't even know there was an environment. And he said, I was in the 60s and I didn't know there was an environment. I thought the environment was your house, you know? So it's it's something that nobody in their consciousness really considered, you know? He's, he's an amazing kid. I'm so intimidated by him, I can't believe it. He's, He's on top of it, man. He set up a studio to do the, the to give us the cameras and everything. He's just an amazing child. His brother's name is Ali, so it's Finney and Ali, and they're so adorable. And hopefully, uh, Bob Kerry, Senator Bob Kerry, who is a friend of mine, lives on Shelter Island, and he won the Congressional Medal of Honor in Vietnam and uh, he lost a leg and, and when he was very young. So hopefully he will be our guy for the Vietnam period. You know, of Agent Orange and the beginning of looking mm -hmm. at what insecticides do and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. That sounds like a powerful film. I hope so. I hope so. Gotta make it funny to it. Well, you know, there's nothing funnier than terrible tragedy. <laughs> Oh yeah, well, Mel Mel Brooks. Yeah, I I also now am involved with uh, Sloan Kettering Cancer Hospital in New York, and I originally became involved because I had prostate cancer, and uh, I went there. There's a note from Finney. He heard you uh, talking about him. <laughs> no, he didn't hear, but his name just came up. So I had my treatment there. And I was so impressed, I, and I felt like I wanted to do something. You know, it's easy, you can give money, but I wanted to do something. So they have a great program there called Visible Inc., which is a writing program for cancer patients. And I, I said, can I be involved in that? So I'm a mentor to about, well, I guess over the past six years, about 30 writers, and it's the most rewarding experience to, to and these people are so courageous and and I was asked to do uh, a talk about humor in difficult situations so I ended up I did one and then they wanted another one so we did a video and I did it with uh, Alan's Y Bell who was yeah. One of the, you know, Alan? Yeah, yeah he's, Alan. Alan's been on the show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he, he, he and a, and someone else you should have on the show, Adriana Trigiani, who is, you know, her name, she is like 20 best selling novels. Wow. I mean, she, and the most amazing person. I mean, she will blow your screen away. So we did uh, an evening. Uh, called I Cried Till I Left. And of course, Alan talked about his relationship with uh, with Gilda Radner. They were best friends. She had yeah. cancer. Yeah. The more we look to our fellow humans, the less we worry about ourselves. The, the more we put yeah. in someone else, less time we have to, to worry about the little things that are 
getting at us. Yeah, I mean, I had one guy who was a writer. He had pancreatic cancer, and he was down to plan M. He had gone through plan A, plan B, and he said, you know, he wrote and said, it's it's not going to work, and he gave me a month. And so I wrote back to him, and I said, don't even bother to answer this because your time is too valuable. But it's been an honor, and a, you know, to know him and then he passed away about a week later mm. and uh, of course everybody talks about it. the pandemic has kind of put like a hot press of down pressing everything that was ever wrong into even a worse mess and uh, we're all still everybody's still trying to find themselves in, in, in the face of that, you know. For somebody yeah. like you who's been on the planet for so long, you've seen so many things. Does that give you a, a perspective that's more positive or are you worried um, about I, where I, we are? I, I'm very worried, yeah. I I mean, I'm, I think about people with kids. I think of Finney and uh, it's not good. I mean, you know, there was all of these piles of garbage all over the country, but there was never, and you know, I'm obviously being very political, but there was never a magnet that drew all the garbage together. And now there is, and it's an enormous pile, and their time has come, you know. I'm, I'm, the Democrats are, I mean, the way they've fixed elections now that there's no way for a Democrat to win because even when they win, some guy on the city council can disallow the the election, you know. I think that people didn't realize, for whatever reason, how powerful local elections are, how important oh, they are. That's, well, in 1950s, there was an organization called the John Birch Society which was not even the beginning of all this. This has been around since the Civil War, which never really ended. And uh, so there are always groups that are looking to pull things to the right and away, you know, and to cause, ang you know, dissension and racial hatred and anti-Semitism because it's a great, it's a great car to ride on into telling your message, you know because there's so many people ready to listen to it. And uh, at any rate, it, it, it was always bad, but it was never as bad as it is now. And part of it is because how easy it is to communicate misinformation and things are lied about. And, you know, who was it who said that uh, a lie goes around the world a hundred times before anyone even bothers to think of the truth? You know, yeah, I think that a lie goes around the world uh, before, uh, however many times before the truth even gets its pants on. I think that was, um, uh, what's his, good old, what's his name? Uh, Samuel Clemens said that, I believe. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I wouldn't disagree. That's very literate of you. So I'll say, oh, yeah, Samuel Clemens. Yeah, Mark Twain. I couldn't think of his pen name for some yeah, weird yeah. reason. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's inconceivable to me that people actually believe some of the stuff they believe. Well, you know? it feeds their own hatred and it feeds their own pain and it feeds their feeling of other. Um, I, I have a guy who I used to write with who I loved and we had so much fun together. We would get together every day and we wrote some really wonderful stuff. We wrote a one-way show for him and some other things. And uh, he was a conspiracy theory guy. And he would, while we were working, he would check the Drudge Report. And then when, when Trump got the nomination and was running, I could live with that, you know? All right, he was crazy, but so forth. When Trump got elected that night, I I didn't know how I was going to ever talk to Tom again. Not 
to penalize him, but I didn't know where there was an avenue to just say, hey, let's do, you know, I mean, a horror had taken place in my view and a victory in his. And I wrote him an email and I said, you know, I gotta have to take some time because I don't know how to incorporate this. I know you're a, the sweetest person in the world. I would trust you with my life. But I don't know how to just come in and make this not be there. And he wrote back and he said, you broke my heart. I never thought you'd let politics come between us. And I said, I wouldn't, but this is not politics. This is a destruction of reality and the truth. And it can't go anywhere. And if I've got to be on that level to accept that you don't believe in the truth, I don't know where to start. So I haven't spoken to him in, since mm -hmm. that, since the election. That's tough. But it, it's, it's not like you, you know, you disagree on, I mean, I've disagreed politically with people forever. And they're, yeah, I, it is different. It. It's a different thing. It's like looking up at the sky and saying, well, look at this blue sky. And they say it's green. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it really is just the total, and, you know, at one point, uh, Giuliani said, somebody said to him, well, what about the truth? And Giuliani said, there is no truth. And that's, that's the reality. There is yeah. no truth anymore. Yeah. Everybody has their own version of the truth. And they believe theirs just as fervently as I believe mine, you know. But again, considering you've been around for a long time and you've seen where this has happened before. Yes. That's got to be that much been, more terrifying. You know, I have a couple of things that are like things I gave my kids. I said, just remember this. You don't have to agree with the law of gravity to fall down. It's there. It's real you know and don't ever join anything where you have to cut off your thumb to get in because when you want to get out you don't get your thumb back but these people don't believe in the law of gravity they they've cut off their thumb you know and at a certain point you have to defend that you've done that you know yeah, and ego and pride steps in and then even if some little part of you is thinking maybe this isn't true your saving face puts you into a world where yeah, you have yeah. to double down. Yeah. Very, very bizarre. Yeah. Well, let's get so back. Anyway, when do we get into fun? Yeah, yeah. Let's get back to you as uh, so you're entering into the world. Did you have yeah. a night of the world post being in your family and going out to make it on your own? And you're in advertising. Did you have in the back of your mind the idea that you wanted to write for television or did you happenstance that? No. I had only one important purpose and that was not to work for my father in the <laughs> store. I, I used to have to do that. So, so I don't know. I Once I got to work for the ad agency, somebody got sick who had to be the who was the production assistant on a commercial so they sent me to do that and i said oh this is fun you know and then something else happened and and i got to do that and then something else and then i left that job and uh i wasn't sure what i was going to do for a while and then i saw an ad in the new york times for a uh a uh, continuity assistant at radio station WNEW. And back in 1950s, radio, and especially WNEW, was the crown jewel of all radio. I mean, it was regarded throughout the country. Everybody knew WNEW. They invented the disc jockeys, you know, and all. So I went to get this job and I had no idea what the continuity department was, but uh, I figured at $30 a week, I wasn't going to need a master's degree. And so this guy interviewed me 
And he said, okay. He said, I'm going out to lunch. He said, I would like you to write a jingle about this and write a weather report. And do. And then he walked out and I sat there and I thought, oh my God, how do, how do, how do I do this? I have no idea. But I figured I better do it. So I, I did, you know. And he came back. Good, you're hired. I said, that's great. And 10 minutes later, we got a phone call. And it was from the guy he had lunch with. And that was an interview for him for a job. And he got the job. So now I was the head of the continuity department. <laughs> and I still didn't know what it was. And what it was was actually was putting the disc jockeys books together. That, you know, commercial, next page is a weather report, next page is this. So it was just organizing the continuity of an hour show. And also writing the copy, or were you not writing well, that? No, no, no. I was just doing the file, literally filing. But then it was so boring that I started to write little jokes on the paper, just for myself and the discharge. And then they started to read them. And the, the guy who ran the station said, that's good, keep doing that. And then I had to hire an assistant, because I was so busy. And uh, I hired Sam Denoff, who became my partner for a great many years. And we were then writing little extra things everywhere, and it became part of the station's identity these little things and then on christmas we had a christmas party and we wrote a big show about the the, the net then about the station and the advert it was really great and after it was over this little guy came over and he said uh i would like to be your agent and i said oh my god that's great i never thought about an agent and he said well i'm with the william morris office and i want to be your agent and i said well great can i have a, your card and he said well i don't have my cards yet because until today i was in the mail room and i was just made an agent i said to tell you the truth i don't care if you're still in the mail room you're my agent and that guy was george shapiro who just sadly passed away last week and George went on to become renowned. I mean, he found Andy Kaufman and he discovered Jerry Seinfeld and is Jerry Seinfeld's manager and he produced movies and, and he, but he was my agent for a long time and he got us jobs to write for people who were in the Borscht Belt, you know, the, the, the comedians and comedians who were out on the road a lot of the strip clubs around the country used to have comedians, but they were really there just to talk until the girls put on clothes to take off. You know, they had to run backstage. And so uh, we wrote for a lot of those people. And uh, the first time we ever got paid was we wrote for a guy by the name of Jimmy Casanova. And George said they get 500 they got a, a hundred dollars a minute, and no matter, not a word goes on paper. And the people would say, "Well, wait a minute, what have they done? They're professionals. You got to give me a hundred dollars to get them to even do it." So we made this deal, and Jimmy Casanova came in and we said, "We have a great idea about your name," and he said, "What's funny about Jimmy?" So <laughs> that's where that went. And so we wrote him a thing, and he did it at some bar mitzvah, and then he did it at a wedding, and then a christening. I mean, they they were these, they still have them, you know, these big entertainment complexes in New York where you can have a wedding, you can have a bar mitzvah, you can have a funeral, whatever you want. They just change the lights, and you got it. So the way we got paid was as funny as anything that ever happened. He owed us $500, and he had just gotten a check from an insurance company for $650 for an accident he had in the revolving door at Bloomingdale's. So he gave us the check for $650, and we had to give him $150 in cash because he wouldn't take a check. But that was the first money that we ever made. And then we 
just wrote for everybody that we could and started to get a little reputation and and uh, then George went on to California and was the agent for the Steve Allen show out there, a new show, and he got us a job there. And we I was now earning $75 a week at WNEW, and my wife was pregnant, and we got a, a deal for a three-week contract with a pickup after three weeks for another three weeks, and then another three weeks and another three weeks. But, I mean, it was totally walking on ice that could give away at any time and was for five we got five hundred dollars a piece a week and we decided there was never going to be a perfect time to do it so i had to quit my job and packed up the car went to california and uh in the same deal was buck henry he came out there with us and uh, it was like the, the third show, which was about whether we were going to get picked up or not. And uh, we hadn't done anything stellar. We'd been okay. But then came up with one joke that Steve Allen loved so much that he picked us up for the entire 26 weeks. And two weeks later, they canceled the show. So I got $15,000, and it allowed me to stay out there. And my and Sam got 15000 and we stayed out there. And, do you remember the joke? Huh? Do you remember the joke? Oh, do I remember it? I have the, I have the actual picture of it on my phone. I don't know if you'll be able to see it. There was a show on the air then called... Ben Casey. It was the first of the, uh, not the first, but it was one of the early uh, doctor shows. There was an old guy on it who was the head doctor, and at the start of the show, he would come on. He had a German accent. He, he would come on, and he his name was Sam Jaffe. He was a really famous actor in the Yiddish theater, and he also played Gunga Din in the movie Gunga Din. So the opening of the show was that his name was Dr. Zorba. There was a blackboard there, and he, there were these symbols, and he would say, this is the sign for man, this is the sign for woman, this is birth, this is death, this is infinity. And then they go into the show. So we did a satire on it, and he said, this is the sign for man, this is the sign for woman, this is the sign for birth, this is the sign for death, this is infinity, and this is a pussycat. <laughs> I've seen this bit. And that's, that's what, great. that's saved my life. The thing about the entertainment business, if you're good, you will get there. It may not be easy, it may be circuitous, but the need for good people is paramount. I mean, they need people who can do it. And if you're good, you'll get recognized, you know? And so we got lucky and, you know, and then the biggest thing, of course, was Carl Reiner hiring us to do the Van Dyke show. And the Van Dyke show was so highly regarded that, you know, everybody wanted to hire us because, but Carl, we worked for Carl for five, for three years and we wrote 40 shows, but we wrote on all of them and we learned everything from Carl. Carl Reiner was the most wonderful person that ever existed on the face of the earth. He was perfect. He truly was perfect. He was mm -hmm. honest. He was, he was courageous, and he was funny, man. He was funny, and uh, so from there we were, you know, uh, Marlo Thomas wanted to do a show, and you know, no one really knew her, 
she had been doing some theater and stuff, but ABC had put her in a pilot about three stewardesses. And uh, <clears throat> they didn't buy the show, but everybody loved Marlo. So ABC decided they wanted to do a show. Did they not know her from Danny Thomas? Was that well, not? They, yeah, but they yeah they knew who she was, but they didn't know her as an actress really. Okay, yeah. You know what I mean? They knew she was acting, but they she was not like a hot number to anybody. Yeah, sure. Danny's daughter, and they knew that. And uh, they gave her a bunch of tips, and they were all about girls who were secretaries or the daughter of somebody. That's what. In 1965, that was all that women had offered to them. Anyway, Marlo didn't want to do any of those things. And she said, I want to do a show about a young woman who wants a career. And they said, well, you can't, <laughs> no one cares about that. You, that doesn't. And she said, well, I want to do it. And... Uh, she said she gave the guy who was the head ABC then, but name of Ed Sherrick, he was wonderful. And she gave him a copy of Betty Friedan's book. And he read the book about feminism, and, and he said, Okay, uh, who are you going to get to write it? And she said, I'm going to get Bill Persky and Sam Denoff. He said, You can get them? She said, Yeah. And she, I didn't even know her then. <laughs> so she, she called us, and we had a conversation with her and then well wait hold on before before you let's go back a little bit so marlo thomas called you and sam and said i have this idea for a show right yeah and then did you think she was crazy considering no no, like no not at all i am a big feminist i had an older sister as a matter of fact the name of the show that girl was named because of my sister the original name for the show was Danny Thomas used to call Marlowe Miss Independence. And they were going to call the show Miss Independence. And I said, that sounds like she won a beauty contest, which is the last thing that this show is about. So I said, my sister is a very unusual girl. And uh, my parents always refer to her in the third person because they can't believe what she's doing. And they said, that girl just did this and that girl just did that. And I said, and it seems to me that's who this is. So that was where the title, that girl came from. Love it. Did she get co-creator co credit? I don't even remember. I don't think so. But she was certainly majorly, Marlo was major involved in everything that happened. I yeah. called her the velvet steamroller. <laughs> she never gave in. And she would just roll over you and you didn't even know it at sometimes. But I had a great relationship with her. Sam did not because Sam was kind of a misogynist. And uh, so they were constantly fighting. Great show. I rewatched uh I rewatched the pilot. I guess it wasn't technically the pilot. It was the the setup of how she meets her boyfriend, how Anne meets her boyfriend. Oh, about don't just do don't, something, stand yeah. there. At the end, Marlo Thomas says, I hope you enjoyed that. And I love old school TV. It was so oh, personal. Yeah. And it's coming around again, you know. Yeah. It's all these channels that have it and it's cuz it it was a better time. All of the tele most of the television today there is nobody to like. It you have to pick the least of the terrible like on Better Call Saul, I mean He's despicable, but you want him, you know, we're picking people and, and succession. Who do, who do you root for? And, and, uh, yeah. Billions and that's and, why I love shows like Ted Lasso, Abbott Elementary. Yeah. 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 They all feel good. You yeah. Feel Ted Lasso good. is so, so gentle and decent a person and profound at the same time and, and courageous. And, you know, even a show like, Yellowstone, which I just think is brilliant, and I watch it. There are no good guys there, really. I mean, the Indians got screwed, and and Kevin Costner <laughs> continues to screw the Indians, but he's Kevin Costner, so you love him, you know. Did you but, have an understanding when that girl was happening? Did you feel like, oh, in the beginning, did you know you had something special? Yeah, 
young women, it changed a generation of young women. I mean, it was not just a television show. I mean, I meet women in their 60s and 70s and so on. You changed my life, you know? And because it, and the thing is, it, it went off, it could have stayed on forever as far as the network was concerned, but Marlowe felt, and I agreed to, that it, it had done what it was supposed to do, and we were all ready to move on to something. And uh, they insisted that she marry Donald at the end. And she said that would make a lie out of the whole show, that everything added up to the only way she could be happy is if she was married. She said, and that's not the case. So we didn't end the show that way. The, the, the last show we did, Danny Thomas had never been on the show. Marlowe wouldn't let him near the show. And, but he, her sister, uh, she wanted Terry to be on the show. So they did, we did a show about a nun and Terry played the nun. And at the end, Marlowe went to the church and she walked down the hall and Danny was dressed as a priest. And as she passed him, she said, hello, father. <laughs> that was the Great only- joke. That was the only reference to the whole thing. I love it. That's hilarious. Coming out of that girl, did you feel unmoored or did you have a sense that, okay, now we've done that, we have to better that. We have to best what we've already done. We did a lot of things. Uh, we were doing a lot of specials for Dick Van Dyke. We did a special one special a year for Dick and we were doing specials for other people. And then we had a couple of other series variety shows that we did and uh, then I decided I wanted to be a director and so after 20 years Sam and I split went our separate ways very amicably because I said you know I think we have done it together and uh, we did a, a final pilot that broke my heart it was with Tim Conway and Herb Edelman. It was supposed to be Tim and Harvey, but Harvey thought he was going to be a star in his own show, so he didn't do it. But it was called The Boys, and it was about a comedy writing team. And the pilot was so hilariously funny that people said, well, why bother to send in our shows? This is so great. And it didn't get picked up. And it broke my heart. It really did, because it was just, and I had directed it, and it was one of the first things I directed. And we then ran into a bunch of network garbage, you know? We did a series for Don DeLuise called Lots of Luck. And it was very raunchy for what it was. It was, you know, he was a, it was a, taken from an English series called On the Buses, and he was a bus driver, and lived in, you know, a very lower income family. And uh, the pilot was that they needed a new toilet seat. Toilet seat was broken. So it was really a very bizarre thing to be doing. And the shows that we did, you know, you do a number of shows before you go on the air because you have, they get used up so fast that you have to have some backlog. And the shows that we were doing, we were told that we were going to go on at uh, 9 o'clock on Friday night following Samford and Son. And Samford and Son was a kind of a vulgar edge of vulgarity in there. So it was a perfect fit, you know, that there had been a preamble of that kind of humor and it was all going to be fine. But then some genius came to be the new program head of NBC and he said the show's so good we're going to start Monday night with it and I said it's not that good I said you put that show on on Monday night at eight o'clock with families with no preparation I mean I think the third show we did was about Stanley going out with this girl and they were getting along very well, and she was actually a hooker who his friends had fixed him up with, but he was too nice to ever do so. They had to keep paying her to go out with it. So that show died, and it was really funny. It was really a good show. And then 
we did another show that was supposed to go on following Disney on Sunday night. And that was called The Sunday Dinner. And it was about an Italian family that got together for dinner every Sunday. And one of the sons was a priest. And one of the sons was, you know, married with a lot of kids. And the daughter was Linda Dano. And she was married to a very Protestant blonde guy. And they came to the family. And then they had a young son who was kind of wanted to be an actor. And we had done six shows. And Kay Ballard was Aunt Philomena, who was their annoying aunt. So we had a one. They were hysterical shows. So that was designed to go on following Disney. And the show was they'd come home and watch Sunday football. They'd talk about being in church with their son, who was the priest. And then some genius decided to put it on Wednesday night. So now you have a show on it Wednesday night where people are coming home from church and they're watching football. And, and they changed the name to the Montefuscos, which was the family name, which didn't have any Sunday dinner built in. Everybody could relate to, oh, yeah, I know what that is. So that got canceled, and it was very disappointing. And then I said, we're, you know, we're repeating ourselves, and it, I, I just want to get out of this. So then I started to direct, and I started out directing only pilots. CBS hired me exclusively to do pilots for them. I did 18 pilots, and 14 of them got on the air, but none of them lasted because, and finally I went to CBS and I said, you know, you're hiring me to fool you. If, you know, I'm making really great pilots and you look at them and then I'm not there anymore. And frankly, there's a thing that I do that is me. And that's what gets the cast the way they are. So then I stopped doing that. Then the last pilot I did was uh, Who's the Boss? And th that was really a great experience. And then I moved to New York. I was doing things in New York. And then uh, CBS wanted to put Jane Curtin and Susan St. James on. And this young woman, Sherry Coben, had written a show called Two Mommies. And Susan and Jane had just done a movie together. And they liked each other and wanted to work together. So CBS said, uh, you want to do this? They said, yeah, but it has to be redone and a different thing. And they said, well, what if we get Bill Persky to be the producer and director? And they said, well, okay. So I was the co-head writer, producer, and director of 100 episodes of Kate and Alley. It's a great show. Oh, uh, yeah, it, it, it really was. And it was, it was a show about what are, what are relationships. Everything I did, I tried to make about something that was relevant in my life and in the society at the time. And, and in the early 80s, everyone was talking about relationships and relationships. And this was about a relationship that was, as, was built on the same thing that marriages are built on you know, without the sexual part. Yeah. And it was mutual respect, mutual need, trust, and, you know, love. And I really loved that show. I just loved it. I loved it. We had a reunion recently. There was a guy in New York who was doing something during the pandemic for a charity, and so we did a reunion. And, I mean, those kids are like my kids, you know. Yeah. I feel like you were in the realm of, in the Norman Lears and the Carl Reiners talking about real life shows that mattered. Yeah. Show that mattered and the the zeitgeist and showing shining lights on things that were not being looked at. Yeah. We did a show on Kate and Alley where she was painting the apartment and her daughter called her because she forgot something and she was at Columbia, way uptown. And Jane was all sloppy and ran up in a cab and ran out to her daughter and the cab took off with her purse in it. And her daughter was gone. She had no identification. She had no money. She was homeless. And it was her experiences and how people treated her trying to get home. You know, we did, we did some nice stuff.
Then I had a, a, a commitment from Brandon Tartikoff, who was the one great network executive, the best. I spent so much time with him early in his career. We were good friends. He was a prince, man. And so I wanted to write a show, again, about relationships, so I created a show called Working It Out. And it starred Jane Curtin and Stephen Collins. And the concept of the show was that it was the first show was where they met at a cooking school. Then the second show was at the cooking school and they went out for coffee afterwards. Then the third show was them going and having dinner. And so it was a weekly progression of a relationship. And it progressed just like a real relationship would. And it was wonderful. God, I just loved it. And when we went out, they used to have these press junkets, you know, before, when there were only three networks then, you know, so it was a big deal, the new season. And all the shows, they screened them for the press. And uh, then you would come out and talk and answer questions for 20 minutes. Jane Curtin and I were there for an hour and a half. The people, they loved this show so much you couldn't believe it. And it was a perfect show for a Wednesday night. NBC put it on Saturday night at 8 o'clock when people who it was for were out. Babysitters were watching it, you know. And still, it won its time slot every week. But after the 13th show, because I was writing them, I was producing and directing, and I was really exhausted. And I said, you've got to try me on another night, or else I, you know, just give it a chance. And they wouldn't do it, so I canceled my own show. Wow. They said, you can't do that. I said, yes, I can. That was really the last venture I had, except for in 2006, John Marcus, John did the Cosby show. He and I wrote a, a, a beautiful pilot about old comedians. You know, it was called Us and Them. And it was about a young comedian who loves all the old comedians and they get involved in his life and his wife can't stand them. And but it was just really wonderful. And they didn't buy it. So that was the you last. Oh, it's marvelous. Yeah, yeah, I love it too. And then I, you know, I, I've uh, directed some movies along, you know, some movies of the week and uh, did a feature. And then I just kind of stopped doing stuff. It is wild to think that so much of film and television can come down to a time slot or a particular oh, agent or a particular director absolutely. or just some twist of fate. Well, they used to test only the shows that the network executives liked. They put those on one pile and they put another pile of ones they didn't want. And by accident, one of the ones they didn't want got put on the other pile and tested higher than any other show. And that was uh, Gilligan's Island. And after that, they tested everything, you know, because they can't trust their own judgment. Yeah, that's interesting. It, was, it sounds like you've led a life that you wouldn't really change anything, that you've done all the things you set out to do. I, I've long, done, there were a couple of things that I didn't have the courage to do. Like? There was a movie with Burt Lancaster and the producer wanted me to direct it, a Western. And it was in Durango, Mexico. And every time I've been to Mexico, I've gotten sick and I've been mugged and I've had a, a scorpion bite me. I've had, you know, so I hate going to Mexico. And Durango was in the mountains and it's really weird. But I think if it maybe if it hadn't been in Mexico, I'd like to think that's why. But I think I couldn't picture myself saying to Bert Lancaster, Bert, when you get on the horse, yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
what have I got to tell him? But I did do George Siegel's first television movie, which was a drama, and he was not thrilled. It was like a real come down for him to be doing a TV movie at the time. That was a tough job. But I've been disappointed by things I loved, you know, that didn't go. And I and I found out many years later about the boys. A guy called me, he was drunk, and he said, I've been meaning to tell you this for 10 years, and I had to be drunk to tell you. Harvey Shepard, who was the head of research, didn't like Sam, and he didn't tell the truth about the research, so it, that killed the show. Ah. Oh. So there's that kind of stuff, you know. Bill, thank you for spending so much time oh, with Oh, I you. liked it very much. Hey, I appreciate you talking to me. I'm 90 years old. I'm happy to talk to anybody. Well, you're 90 years young. I think most people at 90 don't expect someone to be as kick-ass as you are still. My dad's the same way. He's, yeah. You know, it's it's great. My nice. Honestly, I got to say, when you were talking about how you're doing this project with young people, it's if I were to win the lottery tomorrow, I would take that money and I would open art, music, writing centers where people who are elderly and kids come together and share yeah. creative. I think magic will happen in that scenario. John, uh, Alan Bell just wrote a beautiful film or a short story rather about that. The one with Billy Crystal? No, a, a short story he wrote, oh. a novella. Oh. an old man and a young kid. It's beautiful. Oh, I'll have to read it. Well, it doesn't exist yet. It, I mean, I read it, and he's still fooling around with it, but it's great. Yeah. I loved Alan. Is He's a kick in the pants. I really oh, enjoyed I, I, I love him. I'm having lunch with him tomorrow. As a matter oh, of tell him, him I said hi. Jeffrey, him and Jeff both. Please give them my love. I will do that. Okay, good talking to you, dear. You too. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Okay. Bye. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.